But uh, we're picking up in 2 Corinthians. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, I'm sorry about where we are because we're talking about a dude who was like sleeping with his stepmom. So, uh, yeah, everybody just like, what? What did he just say? <laughs> um, but what, what's happened here is, is Paul has written a series of letters to this church at Corinth. He was in Corinth and he. He basically told them about Jesus, and a church started. And then all sorts of, he left, and all sorts of problems happened. There were other teachers that came in and started teaching a different message. False teachers and things like that. And so he was constantly, he was constantly answering their questions and straightening out their theology and doing these things. And then there was some, obviously, bad stuff that was going on. In the first letter that we studied... If you go all the way back to October 12th last year, we were in 1 Corinthians at that point. And he wrote this letter and he talked about this man that was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, if you read that, you go, well, that's his mother. We believe that it was his stepmother. Well, let's get into it because this is where we are in the letter. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, now that I've got your attention. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. He's caused pain to me, but really it's, it's on you guys. Now... I've always been taught that what he is referring to there is this dude that he wrote about in 1 Corinthians. The one that's sleeping with his father's wife, stepmother. You go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, It is actually reported, it's actually reported, there is a sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Well, of course, the Jews aren't going to tolerate it, but the Gentiles, they tolerate a lot. The Jews were intolerant, but the Gentiles... But even the Gentiles looked down on this. This was, like, nasty to them. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. He's saying to the church, you're arrogant. Like, you're okay with this. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? And then he goes on to verse 5 and he actually says, here's what you have to do with this man who doesn't want to stop sleeping with his stepmother. This sounds really harsh, but he says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, that's Pretty wild, right? Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Here's what he said. And you know, I'm going to say this. I've done that. I've done that with people. But listen to what he's saying. Let him choose his own path. If you've, if you've sat down with him and said, dude, this isn't right. The Gentiles don't even think it's right much less believers in Jesus, and he refuses, well, dude, you're on your own. But you can't really stick around here and 
contaminate the rest of our people with your belief system. Sounds kind of harsh. Sounds cruel. But he's going to deal with his parents. Listen to this. He's going to deal with his logical negative consequences. Like, I say parents because you're raising teens and sometimes we try to save them from logical negative consequences. But there's really nobody out there saving you from your bad choices and your logical negative consequences. So Paul's saying, let this dude deal with his own logical negative consequences. And he, he says it like, when he says turn him over to Satan, you know that what we talk about in here is that, uh, one, I have a spirit of God that lives inside of me. Like he's taken out my old heart, put a new heart in me, made me a new creation. There's no room for Satan to possess me. There's no room. Now, Satan can oppress me. He can like send thoughts to me and all sorts of stuff. And, and that's really what he's done to this man is he's sending him thoughts and he's acting on those thoughts. He's choosing a selfish route for his own life. And so Paul's basically said, let him go down that path until his flesh has been destructed. Till it's destroyed. Like he comes to the end of himself. Just let him go. And when he comes to the end of himself, then, get this, crisis intervention happens. He has an ear to hear the good news and what you have to say. That's what we do. That's literally what we do right here in this room. We wait for crisis to happen and we sit down with them and we love them. Now, I say all that because that's what we were taught. I don't necessarily believe that's the same guy that Paul's talking to. I really don't. Because he said, he's hurt me, but he's really hurting you. And so what I believe Paul is referring to is someone has publicly confronted Paul and his beliefs and is teaching a different gospel, which isn't a gospel, to this church at Corinth. And people began to believe this false teacher or false teachers. And it offended Paul. It's like if somebody came in here and started teaching a different message than what I'm teaching, I would just, it would. And so literally we talked about what Paul wrote, a third letter. He wrote this very severe letter saying he's heartbroken, he's humiliated, he's crushed, da 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 And he sent it, he hit the send button, and then he like, oh man, I wrote it too harsh. Remember all that? I believe because of that, he may be talking about someone else than this guy that we've always taught that it was in 1 Corinthians. So, and here's what's crazy. Uh, It says like there, uh, not to exaggerate to all of you, 
He says he has caused pain, not so much to me, but to some, to some degree. The rest of you. Think about this. There was division in the church that caused people to choose sides. To choose opinions versus the truth. This is what Paul's like. You guys, you're getting a false gospel. You're not getting what I actually told you. And so you're choosing someone else's opinions and thoughts versus just the word. This crushed Paul, and I'm assuming that was the reason for his severe letter. In verse 6, he says, This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. Again, he talks about if there's a majority, then there's a what? Minority. In other words, the church is divided on how they dealt with it. Some of you did let him go. But some of you refused not to let him go. Not everyone participated in the punishment that Paul had told them that they need to do. Again, just showing the division in the church. But listen, he said, but it was sufficient. So what happened? Whoever Paul is referring to here, he repented. In other words, he changed his mind. That's repentance. He, he changed his mind about his opinions, whatever he was teaching or whatever he was doing. And he says, it's sufficient. It worked. He's back with us. He's back in agreement with us. He's, it's good. Then we get into verse 7. It says, as a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Oh, church, listen to that. So now what has happened is they disassociated with him. He went down his path. He came to the end of himself and he changed his mind about his path and he began to believe what they believed. But now Paul's like saying, okay, now don't be so hard on him. He needs to be back in the fellowship. He needs to be back in the community. You guys quit being so hard on him. He said, don't give up on this guy. Hmm. Let me say this. He said, don't give up on this guy. What culture are we living in? The cancel culture. Like, if you screw up, you're done. You're you're done. There's no discussion. There's no change of heart. You're canceled out. It's over. But what he's saying right here is, this is grace. You need to show grace to this man. Think about it. All believers, all of you in this room who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you've new heart, new creation, you've received grace. You've received grace. But not all believers give grace. Right? Not all believers give grace. When you understand what has been given to you, 
then you're able to give to others. If you don't really understand what's been given to you, why, why would you give grace? But we sit here and talk about what Jesus did. Do I, do I really need to explain it, what Jesus did? That you were born with a sinful nature and you sinned and you're separated from God? He basically gave us the Old Testament and the law and said, here, do all these things, and we couldn't do it. So Jesus said, hey, I'll come do it perfectly, and I'll be a sacrifice for you, everybody, from Adam to my blood will be poured out, and I'll forgive you of all your sins. You weren't even born, so all your sins be forgiven. He was the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice, and if you understand that, that he died, God sent his only son to die for you, his blood was poured out, and you believe that? I was given grace, like all my sins were forgiven, everything I've done, everything I'm doing, everything I'm going to do, Jesus is already taken care of. I wasn't, I was 37 years old when I finally figured that out. I mean, I got saved when I was eight. But it wasn't until I was 37 that I figured out his blood covered everything I've done. And then when I realized what I had received, this grace, it's like you begin to dole it out. When you understand what's been given to you, then you're able to give it to others. You know, if you watch... It's almost a way of measuring the spiritual maturity of a believer. The amount of grace that they're able to distribute. If Jesus died for all sin, and anyone who believes in Jesus can be given for all sin, then why shouldn't we be able to forgive? It's literally what Paul's saying to the church. Well, yeah, you, you were offended, they hurt you. They suffered logical negative consequences, but man, you've been forgiven. Now, I, we could sit up here and we could easily go down a dark path of terrible sins that seem unforgivable. But the truth, we know that Jesus already dealt with all those at the cross. And he says, this whole excessive grief Excessive grief, there are obviously logical, natural, negative consequences that occur with sin. But consequences can still occur. They can still happen at the same time that grace and forgiveness is given. They can. Like, somebody does something wrong, they're going to suffer for it, but at the same time, I can love them and show them grace. And, there, and he says right there, verse 8, Therefore, I urge you to affirm your love to him. <laughs> I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I'm going to say this. It's okay to freely give love. Do you hear me? It's okay to freely give love. Sometimes we want to protect who we give our love to because it seems like it 
gives it more value. Think about that for a second. I can love others because I've been loved much. Like I've experienced true love. And because I've experienced true love, not only from my Heavenly Father, but from you, I find it easy to love. The, in fact, the more love you give away, the more love you have, obviously. <laughs> Seems pretty simple. If There's not a limit on love. So why wouldn't we just give it away? Do you, do you really think that you don't have enough love to give to your barber? Kurt, I love you. Thank you. And we say that regularly. To, can you say I love you to your wait staff? Man, uh, Lacey works back here on Sunday mornings after we leave. And just last week, you know, I was walking out. I'm like, Lacey, I love you. She goes, I love you. You have enough love to love your tax man. Tim, I love you. <laughs> Former tax man, he says. Well, why can't we just spread a little love? You have plenty of love because you've been loved. And it doesn't make it any less worth by saying, I love you. It actually does quite the opposite. It multiplies. It multiplies. What great love it is to be able to look someone in the eye who has done you wrong and tell them I love you. That's what Paul's saying to the church. I mean, you do believe in grace, right? Verse 9, he says, I wrote for this purpose to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. I believe that he's talking about that severe letter that he wrote. He's like, I wrote you this letter. I think he's still licking his wounds for writing it and sending it, but he knows that it produced something good out of it. Verse 10, it says, Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. He's doing the same schemes today that he's been doing for thousands of years. It's not any different today than it was back then. We know what his scheme is. His scheme is isolation. His scheme is uh, deceit. His, his scheme is to give us bad thoughts. We, we know the game plan. We know what his deal is. It's, it's not that difficult. But if you live in a state of unforgiveness... You're miserable. I'm, I'm sorry, but you are. And then when you're miserable, nobody wants to be around you. And so the whole idea of forgiveness is to like lighten your heart, lighten your load, and you're kind of pleasant to be around. And think about it. The person that you can't forget, they've probably moved past it and they're okay. That's the real issue. You're stuck in it. You're stuck in something that you don't have to be. I get it. Feelings and emotions are going to occur, but 
you honestly have the ability to impact your emotions and feelings based upon the truth that you know and you understand. Like if you rest in the truth, it will greatly impact what you believe, what you feel, what you do, even. So Paul says all that whole section and that's a part of church discipline that rarely occurs. Let the dude back in. You've busted his chops. He's repented. Now go love the guy. Let him back in. Then he jumps into a little section here, verse 12 and 13. He says, when I came to Troas, let me uh, show you the map real quick. Um, When I... I'll go ahead and skip to that map there. There, Here's the map. I'll show you over here on this so everybody down there can see. But uh, he's in Macedonia, and he says, when I come to Troas, which is at the top in the orange section, he originally was down in Ephesus, which is on the Asia side right there, and he's writing to the church in Corinth. He was planning on going to Corinth, but when he sent that letter with Titus, the severe letter, He wanted to go track down Titus and see how it was received, so he went to Macedonia to try to find Titus. He went to Troas, and all of a sudden, we know that he had this great ministry in Troas. The the church was started, people were getting excited and everything else, but he was so intent on what was happening in Corinth and where was Titus to fill him in and everything. This is what he's explaining in verse 12. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord opened the door for me, It was all good. Everything was great. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus. Instead, I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. Like he's gone to Macedonia to try to catch up with Titus now. Like I got to know how it's going with the receiving of the letter that I wrote that was so sharp. Now, When I look at that passage right there, I I want you to think about what this passage is the fact that being right where you're supposed to be in terms of ministry doesn't mean that you're always going to have emotional peace. Like, if, if things were going good for Paul and Troas, but he's still unsettled. Like, you might be, like, right in the middle of where God wants you to be, but there's still this unsettlement that may occur. In fact, there's times, because you're right where God has called you to be, you face some real inner turmoil with yourself. Well, who said doing ministry was going to be easy? Who said hanging out with people who struggle between walking with the Spirit and according to the flesh, who said that was going to be easy? What Paul does, he ends here on this very tense moment in his life and ministry, and it kind of leaves tension hanging in the air. He says, this is what's going on. I'm kind of concerned about things. I'll get to you. Then he's going to actually go through a long section in this letter in the center of the book, and he lays out this theological explanation of, what authentic ministry looks like, which 
what is authentic ministry? It's following the Spirit. Like, you never know from day to day what's going to happen. That's the exciting part. Paul's literally saying right here, as an authentic minister of Jesus Christ, I'm under God's orders himself. And God moves me around the world. That's what he's saying. And then he kind of gets into explaining his authentic ministry. Verse 14. Got four more verses here. He says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now, Paul used some uh, interesting words right here. He talks about the triumphal procession. You have who, What government is in charge of all these areas? It's the Roman Empire that's taking place right here. And so you know in history books, based upon everything that you've studied, that the Roman armies were incredible, and they would go in and they would dominate different regions and different countries, and they would come back and they would be like the Atlanta Braves who just won the World Series and they would have these parades in town. Look what we did. Look what we've come. So now the general rides in on his chariot with his horse. He leads the parade. He leads the parade and then you go, okay, well, what comes after that? Well, let's show you what all we took from them, all the possessions and wealth and everything else that we conquered from this country. And let's show you all the armor that we received as we went to battle and we defeated everybody. And hey, why not we just show you some of the people that we captured and made slaves? We'll put them in the parade as well. And you can see them. And then, of course, then along comes the Roman army you know, all in their glory and everything else, there literally is a parade that happens when they conquer countries. So Paul knew that the Corinth people understood what a triumphal procession looked like. It happened all the time around them. They knew. They knew what it was. And so now he's made this illustration, this is what it's like when Christ's word, the gospel comes in, it it makes a triumphal procession. Verse 15, it says, For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You know that I like that word aroma. That I believe, I believe that you put off an aroma. I, you hear me say all the time, it's good to smell you. Rather than, I, mean, I don't understand why we don't say that instead of it's good to see you. Why, smelling is, you put off an aroma, right? And I'm not talking about like the, the, the physical smell, but just like there's an atmosphere in this room. You know, uh, Wednesday night, I have my family here, and we uh, made grilled chicken sandwiches over a fire pit. You smell it right now, right? You smell the fire pit. You smell the chicken cooking on there. And then yesterday, I got in my car to go pick up Graham at the airport, and my car was sitting in the garage 
that the chicken scraps had been sitting in the trash can since Wednesday, and I had this aroma in my car from the same product. Two things came from the same product. A great fragrant smell and a nasty smell. (laughs) Two distinct different smells. Well, in this processional, this Roman processional, they actually had incense burners. People that walked along with incense, and as the Roman parade went along, the incense was burning, and it was the smell of victory. The smell of victory. But, if you're a captive, a slave... And you smelled that? It was a smell of defeat. And it was a nasty smell. The same thing. The same thing. You think about on an annual basis, they would sacrifice animals in the temple. Like in the middle of the day, the hot sun, and they're slicing open these animals, and blood's pouring out, and blood's drying, and there's flies around, and it, it had to been a nasty, nasty smell. But at the same time, their sins were being atoned for, and it was a beautiful smell. You get where I'm going with this? Like the same. The same thing can smell good one time, and at the same time, it can smell bad. Paul's using this as an illustration. The gospel is a sweet aroma to those who believe, and it makes sense. But to the rest of the world, it stinks. And they're going to let you know it. And you'll be persecuted for it. If you understand it, it's a sweet aroma. It's a beautiful aroma. Let me hang out. You are a beautiful aroma. You smell good. But if the world doesn't understand it, don't want it, stinks. Verse 16, he says, To some, we are an aroma of death leading to death. But to others, an aroma of life leading to life. The same thing has two different smells. In these parades, those slaves that were taken captive, they were oppressed. But some of them were now liberated and set free from the tyranny that they were in their own country. So again, even the slaves, some of them thought it was a sweet aroma. Some of them thought it was a nasty aroma. Sometimes when the gospel goes out, people don't respond well. That's why so much of this 2 Corinthians is filled with Paul's suffering. He's being persecuted for the cause of Christ. As we read it, sit here and go, man, this is pretty awesome, pretty cool. But at the same time... There's false teachers that are going on and everything else. So, celebrating here, Paul says there's those who do respond positively. There's those that respond positively. Not everybody's going to receive it. 
There's ones that are being saved. Their whole lives are opening up in front of them. And it's good news. It's the gospel. But then he says this. He says, who is adequate for these things? Like, who's qualified to teach this good news? I think Paul even questions himself as a teacher. Think about this for a second. Paul was a Pharisee waiting for the Messiah to come. Obviously, Jesus had come and he had already died. And Paul was killing those who believed in that, that Jesus was the Messiah. He was killing people that believed that. And then he had this experience on the road to Damascus where all of a sudden he was enlightened with this right here, the good news, the gospel, the sweet aroma. And a man who once thought it was a nasty, that Jesus was a nasty smell, that the, the blood that was poured out by Christ was worthless, all of a sudden became valuable and meaningful to him. Like, his conversion happened immediately from what he would refer to himself as the chief of all sinners, killing Christians, to I'm a holy, righteous, redeemed saint. Who's adequate for these things? I wasn't, but now I've been made adequate. Verse 17, watch this. For we do not market the word of God for profit like so many. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. Obviously, Paul's having to deal with false teachers who were coming into town and peddling their message and asking for support and everything else. And they were delivering these messages that weren't necessarily true and he was having to deal with it. But at the same time, they were paying these people. And he's like, I, you don't have to pay me. I make tents for a living. I support myself. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not here to peddle anything and to make money off of anything. That was a regular issue that Paul had to deal with in Corinth. And he's saying, when we proclaim the word of God... We're doing it in a way with real integrity. We are sincere proclaimers of the word who are preaching the word of God in the world as people are sent by God. God has sent us. Because he sent me, I'm qualified. Because I have a new heart, I'm qualified. Because I have a spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in me, I'm qualified. You guys, you guys, you are a sweet aroma. You're a sweet aroma. If you don't know that by now, if you don't know that by now, I don't know how many weeks I can stand up here and say, you've been made new. You have been redeemed. I'm not concerned about what you do because sometimes you're going to make bad choices and the world's going to call you hypocrites and I'm not concerned about what you do. I'm more interested in what you've been made into. 
Like, you didn't do it. Jesus did it in you. He made you holy. He made you righteous. You're forgiven. You're a child of God. You're a prince and princess to the throne. You're all these things that Paul says you are, that the scripture says you are. That's who you are. Walk around like you believe it. Walk around in the aroma that you put off would be absolutely amazing. It's good to smell you today. Jesus, thanks for your word. I thank you for uh, the sweetness of the gospel, the good news that it is. that It's not just a, a belief system, it's, it's a transformation. That you've transformed us into something different. And we can literally be a light into this world. We can be a sweet aroma in this world. Would you cause us to see that even more today? Would you cause us just to walk in forgiveness? In a state of forgiveness? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.